Well, good morning. I'm not Stephen Little John. My name is Casey Shaw. I serve at Gastonia campus and I'm working towards my role there is working towards planning the next Parkwood Church in the city of Mount Holly. So really uh, encouraging and a joy to be with you this morning as you're one of the first uh, plants out of Gastonia in modern Parkwood history. So really glad to be with you this morning and, and enjoy uh, the goodness of God together and worship together. Anybody hot? Everybody hot? I think the Lord in his grace allowed the air conditioning to go out for us so that we could just resonate, feel what Pastor Stephen feels this morning in West Africa. Um, it is not near this, well, we are not experiencing the heat near as much as, as they are. And what's cool is, they're probably outside, and everybody at the church walked there. Um, so, we're good, we're good. We drove here in air-conditioning cars, and it feels okay out in the lobby. So if you need a cool-down break, feel free to head out. I won't be offended. Psalm 8 is where we are this morning. Um, Psalm 8 is like emerging into the sunlight after being in a dark, narrow tunnel. Psalms 1 through 7. But we, we emerge in Psalm 8, and this is really a psalm of joy. It's a psalm that uh, talks about the greatness of God and our place within God's universe. And so, I invite you to stand as we read Psalm 8 together. To the choir master, according to the Gitti, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, your name is indeed majestic in all the earth. Praise God that we... Know that your name is majestic in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. That someone came with the news of your salvation. That we can know that you, you are the majestic God of the universe. That you care deeply about mankind. And that you have a plan for our redemption. And so I pray that we would celebrate together your majesty. I pray that we would see you as majestic, Lord. You would show yourself as glorious to our hearts. May we enjoy you together this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Main idea this morning is that God displays His majesty through the beauty of creation, the weakness of people, and the crucified Messiah. First thing we want to see is that God displays His majesty through the beauty of creation. Look with me at verse 1. David begins, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
David begins with the hymn with, O Lord, our Lord. Now in your Bible, that's the same word, Lord and Lord. But in the Hebrew text, it's two different words. The first Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, D, is Yahweh. Yahweh, Exodus 3. This is where God tells Moses to go and lead his people out of bondage. And Moses says, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, I am. That's what my name is. I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. This is the name by which God has revealed himself to us. Yahweh, the great I am. And then the second Lord, capital L, but then lowercase o-r-d is Adonai or king, ruler. Here's what David is saying. Oh, Yahweh, our king. We can know from verse one a few things about God's name that by which he is known. First, that it's absolute. His name is absolute. He is the only absolute self-existing being in the entire universe. That is not true of you or me. We changed. We change. We change slowly but surely. You can look back throughout your life and think, oh my goodness, thank you. God, that I'm not like I was when I was 13 years old. We change. And some of us may change for the worse. But God never changes. He always is perfect. His name is also personal. David says, oh, Lord, our Lord, this Yahweh, this absolute self-existing being can be ours. We can have a relationship with him. His name is also authoritative. It says your name is majestic in all the earth. It's magnificent. It's powerful in all the earth. It's also pervasive. It says in all the earth. Not only is God's name majestic in all the earth, but his glory is also above the heavens. Look at the end of verse one. You have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, his his majesty, his glory is so pervasive that there is not one square inch of the universe that doesn't declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 one says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. In their words to the end of the world. As beautiful and big as that sounds. Our words do not do justice to the glory of God. Our words can't contain the glory of God. That's why David writes you have set your glory above the heavens. Now this is significant. Because the Jew would have understood the heavens as three tiers. The atmosphere. The first heavens. The second heavens. The stars. and The moon. The planets. Then the third heavens where God particularly reveals his glory. And David says, you have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, the heavens cannot contain the glory of God. The glory of God doesn't fit in the heavens. It only reveals just a glimpse of it. The limitless landscape of the skies expose a glimpse of, but cannot contain in its entirety, the glory of God. That's a big deal. I feel just insufficient trying to preach on the majesty of God because I don't have words. We don't have minds to comprehend the bigness of the majesty of God. And it's fascinating if you think about this. 
But what's even more fascinating about this psalm is not only the bigness of God in verse 1, but notice the transition between verse 1 and verse 2. The greatness of the glory of God, the mouths of babies and children. This is fascinating. This is a psalm about the majesty of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, out of the mouth of babies and infants. Why does David transition from the greatness of God to the mouth of babies? Well, let's look and see. Verses 2 through 8 show us that God displays his majesty through the weakness of people. And this first group of people that he displays his majesty through is vulnerable children. God silences his enemies through vulnerable children. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So verse 2, God has enemies. Reality check. We all knew that. God has enemies. There are people in this world. There are people in churches throughout the South this morning that hate God. But they're there because they're supposed to do it on Sunday morning. But God has enemies. Some of his enemies blend into God's people and some of its enemies are outright rejecting God at this very moment. There are people who hate him, who hate his ways. Psalm 2 even says in verse 1 that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. So God has numerous, seemingly wise and seemingly powerful enemies. And how does the Lord deal with his enemies? How does the Lord, who has the entire universe at his disposal, deal with his enemies? You, you and I know how he can deal with his enemies. God simply could speak and we cease to exist. Hebrews 1, which we'll look at later, says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God thinks a thought and we could stop breathing now. But how does he deal with his enemies in Psalm 8? David tells us that God silences his enemies by the words of babies. Which is so weird that this is right here. What are babies doing in a psalm about the majesty of God? Because God desires to silence his enemies by displaying his majesty through the most vulnerable people on the planet. God desires to display his majesty through weakness. That's the theme of this psalm. This happens in Matthew 21. Turn there with me. Matthew 21, verses 5, or 15 and 16. This is just after the triumphal entry. And this is, you could sort of read over Matthew 21 if you're just reading through the New Testament. But it is extremely powerful when you understand it in context of Psalm 8. Because Jesus quotes it. Matthew 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What Jesus is doing here is significant. 
He's not just rebuking Pharisees here. In affirming the statements and the praise of these children, he is saying to everyone in attendance, everyone who is watching, I am Yahweh. I am the same God who sent Moses to Egypt to lead my people out. I'm here in the flesh. And these seemingly religious leaders, people of God, they're my enemies. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus affirms these children and uses them to silence the enemies of God. It is so amazing how God so often uses the words of children to even correct our own thinking. We are so prone to think like the world and so often a child will speak and it's like, you dummy. Why didn't I see that? My mom had a, her oldest sister when she was growing up uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer at the age of seven. And uh, she ended up passing away when she was 10. My grandparents, Becky was her name. My mom's sister, her, her parents, my grandparents were not Christians at the time. Um, but my grandmother would take Becky to doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment. They had no money. They had no medical knowledge, just desperate to save their little girl. And they would make frequent trips to Chapel Hill. And Becky would regularly say, you know, doctor, you can't do anything for me. But it's okay because Jesus has done everything. And my grandmother would be so embarrassed. Stop saying it. She wasn't a believer. You're, you're minimizing this doctor. You don't say this to him. But can you imagine being a doctor, walk in the room? You are the elite. You are the chief. You're the expert in brain cancer, not an eight-year-old. And she says, I don't need you. Whether you heal me or not, Jesus has taken care of the most significant cancer, the most serious cancer, the cancer of my soul. Jesus is everything. He's done everything for me. Out of the mouth of babies. God prepares praise. This is so encouraging. This is a good quote. I have to read it for you moms out there. This should be a huge encouragement for young mothers who spend their days wiping noses, cleaning up spills, folding little hands before meals, and singing songs while changing diapers. Step back and see the big picture. God is making His name majestic in this world through you. God is establishing strength in this world through your children as they learn to praise Him. God loves to demonstrate his majesty through weakness. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is the wisdom of God. But God not only chooses to demonstrate his majesty through babies, he does so through inadequate people like us as well. Notice God grants care and dignity to inadequate people in verses three and following. Look at three and four. David says, when I look at your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place? What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? So David, laying out one night, sitting out one night, looks up at the stars and he feels his insignificance in this world. That is a good thing. You ever stood out on the beach, on the shore, and you look out and you can't see the end. You look up and you can't see the end. That's David's situation. And he feels his total insignificance in this moment. And he thinks about this majestic God who uses his fingers to set stars and solar systems in place. In other words... The beauty and the detail and the design of the universe is all God's work and it's all a piece of cake for him. It's Not a big deal. And he is intimately involved with every detail of his universe. That is such a glorious reality. As David sits there and surveys the skies and he thinks about the wonder and work and majesty of God. He is a big God. And he is in charge. To look up and behold the majesty of God in the skies is a good thing. But the fact that God is mindful and cares for us is even better. Which leads him to ask this question in verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Who am I that you care for me? The bigness of the sky makes David feel particularly small. And yet David realizes that the bigness of the sky is nothing compared to the bigness of God. And he's like, why do you care about me? Who am I? Have you ever taken off in an airplane? You sit at the window seat and you look out and you see things that are really big just slowly get super small. Cars turn to ants. And people, you can just forget people. You can't see them anymore. That's us. We are specks. Just, just a speck. Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. We're totally insignificant. We are just a speck. We are just a drop. In the bucket. That's us. But God is mindful of us. And he does care for us. Notice the dignity that he's granted to us. In verse 5. The very first part of that verse. Yet you have made him. That's us. A little lower than the heavenly beings. The heavenly beings there could mean angels or God. Notice David says that we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Not a little higher than the animals. This is significant. God has given us the highest honor of any earthly being. On the one hand, we are earthly. We're fashioned from the dust of the earth, but we're not mere animals because God breathed his life into us. God gave us a unique and exalted position in this creation. There's dignity in our position. God created us. There's dignity of, of our crown too. It says in verse 5 that God crowned him with glory and honor. God crowned us with something that only belongs to him. In verse 1 you have set your glory above the heavens. And then you crowned us with glory and honor. This is basically David saying. 
and identifying us with God and of saying that we have been made in God's image. We've been made to reflect God's glory in a way that no other part of creation does or can. That's true of us. Sidebar, that's true of every single person you've ever met and every single person you will ever meet. That's important to think about. That is true of the waitress or waiter that you are about to interact with in just a few minutes. That's true of the cashier that you will interact with this week that is operating a little slower than you would hope. That's true of the person that cuts you off on the highway on your way home from work after a busy Stressful day. That is true of the individual standing at the intersection holding a cardboard sign that says I need help. I need money. And you're thinking no you just want alcohol. That's true of every person that has ever been created. Crowned with glory and honor. And every single person is worthy of our respect. Worthy of our love. Worthy of our thoughts and our care. Because guess what? Every single person God is mindful of. And God cares for. Not only we have glory and honor. But there's dignity of our authority. We have authority. Verses 6 through 8. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Our dominion is over all that God has created. He has entrusted us to rule his earth as his representatives. This was God's plan all the way back to the garden. But This is where this psalm loses a little bit of wind in its sails for us. Because if we look back. Our dignity in all three of these areas has been totally distorted by our sin. The dignity of our position and crown and dominion has been distorted by our sin. Our position, though real, has been blurred. Our crown as image bearers of God, though real, is not as noticeable. Our dominion over the earth, though real, is poorly carried out. Instead of enjoying the dignity of our position as a little lower than the heavenly beings, we've stooped and we've pursued life like the beasts of the field. Instead of imaging forth the glory of God in this world, we image forth our own glory, which falls far short. And instead of ruling the world God created, we have chosen to worship it instead. That is true of all of us. So the question for us now really is, who am I that God would care for me? Who am I that God would be mindful of me? Not only am I a speck, I'm a sinful speck. Not only am I a drop in the bucket, I'm a sinful drop in the bucket. I'm a dirty drop in the bucket. Why would God not just totally obliterate me? The God of the universe could squash us like you squash an ant that is annoying and you find it on your countertop and it's just. But he doesn't. That's not what he does. That's not what the God of the universe 
does. He really does care for you. He really is mindful of you. So he came for you. God took on flesh. God came as a baby to make enemies his friends. God entered into the world of mankind. There was no perfect man. So God became the perfect man. To redeem sinful man. And in a way that only God could come up with. His plan for the redemption of mankind was through weakness. Was through suffering. Was through death. God, third point, displays his majesty through the crucified Messiah. I just want to show us a few places in scripture where Jesus is weak and majestic. Both. Look at Matthew 21. Verses 1 through 16. Back where we were earlier. Matthew 21. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is the triumphal entry. And notice how Jesus rides in. The disciples in verse 6 went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. And put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees. And spread on the road. And the crowds that went before him. That followed him were shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying. Who is this? And the crowd said. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Get the picture. Psalm 8 verse 1. Oh Lord. Oh Yahweh our King. How majestic is your name in all the earth. This Yahweh. Strolls into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And some praise him. But some are like who's this guy? Kings ride in on chariots to dominate. But not Jesus. Jesus rode in on a donkey to die. This is the majestic Lord. This is our majestic King. But before we begin to question the legitimacy of this guy who rode in on a donkey. Let's consider Hebrews 1. Flip over to Hebrews 1 where the New Testament begins to unfold. That Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 this is Yahweh. This is our God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the majesty of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is our God. After making purification for sin, after dying in our place, bearing God's wrath for our sins, he sat down and he is the rightful ruler of everything in existence. Through weakness, through suffering, through death, Yahweh, our king, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, he is the perfect God man. And then Hebrews 2, 6 and 9. 
It's been testified somewhere. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't look like he's in charge. But he is in charge Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. For a little while he embraced weakness. For a little while he embraced suffering. For a little while he took on flesh. For a little while he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For a little while God displayed his majesty through the crucified Messiah in order to accomplish our Redemption. Our redemption was accomplished through the weakness of God. But the good news is the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8. Jesus is the perfect person that we could never be, but we were intended to be. We fell far short. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And now he reigns, he rules, everything is under his dominion. Whether it seems like it or not, and he will reveal that. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what? Just a couple questions to end on. Does the majesty of God compel me to worship Back in Psalm 8, verse 9, David ends where he begins. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is reflecting on and thinking about and considering who God is and what God has done. And he can't help but to conclude this psalm in worship. He begins it in worship. He concludes it in worship. O Lord, how majestic is your name. Does thinking about who God is and what he's done compel you to worship? But I think we've got to step back and ask another question to ourselves. Do we think about who God is and what he has done? Or do we think about who our job is and what our job does for us? Or who our family is and what our family does for us? Or who LeBron James is and what LeBron James does for us? I'm serious. People will worship LeBron James tonight. Fill in the blank with anything in the world. Do we consider, do we behold that and think about what that does for us? Because whatever that is, that is what we worship. David is considering and thinking about God and he can't help but to worship him and him alone. Nothing else satisfies except for Jesus Christ. His name is majestic in all the earth. And you can either see it or reject it. But one day you will see it. And it will either be a day of terror for you or it will be a day of joy. And I want it to be a day of joy for every person in this room. And you, as people of Kings Mountain, should want it to be a day of joy for every person in this city. And we don't stop declaring the majestic name of our Lord until everyone sees it as majestic. 
Next question. Last question. Am I displaying the majesty of God with my life? A psalm about the majesty of God, the greatness of God. You're probably thinking, well, who am I? Verse four, who am I that God's going to use me? There is nothing majestic about my life at all. I bring nothing to the table. If you only knew half of my filth, you would totally give up on me. You would stop preaching this sermon to me. You would ask me to leave the room. You are exactly the candidate God is looking for. God displays his majesty through weakness. God displays his majesty through weak people. Like you and like me. God displays his majesty through repentant, insignificant people who are sold out for Jesus. Is that you? Are you weak? Are you weak enough for God? The weaker, the better. I close with 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Here's the deal. We are just broken, beaten, scuffed up, cracked up jars of clay. You don't even have to put fragile on the box. Because we're already broken. But we have treasure in Christ. And the majesty of Jesus shines through us all the more brightly. The more bruised up, beat up, broken down we are. God displays His majesty through weakness. So are you weak enough? Run to him in repentance. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that you use weak people to display your majesty. So we don't have to pretend. We don't have to come to the table pretending that we have something good to offer when we know in our heart of hearts that it's not good. We don't have anything good to offer. We fall short. You tell us that not one of us is righteous. So we come as we are, broken and weak people, repentant, but trusting you alone. Asking that you would fill us up. That you would send us out. And that you would display your majesty through us. In our homes. In this community. And all over the world. You are a big God. So we trust you Lord. We fall into your arms of grace. With everything we have. 